2. Utmost importance to have as your chief packer a man who thoroughly understands how to take care of the animals. It is not the custom in Mexico, as it is everywhere in Australia, to wash the backs of the animals as soon as the packs or saddles are taken off a precaution which is very beneficial, as it strengthens the skin and prevents inflammation and sores. In the southwest they do not wash their beasts of burden until the mischief is done and they have to allay the swelling and heal up the cuts, if not properly cared for from the beginning. The animals will soon be ailing, some grow unfit for service, and much time is lost mornings and evenings curing their sores. Through the carelessness of some packers I lost several valuable mules from such wounds. In summer the blue bottle fly aggravates the annoyance, as it lays its eggs in the open spaces of the skin, and maggots develop in a very short time. Of course there are many ways of ridding an animal of this pest, but here, as everywhere, the proverbial ounce of prevention is better than the pound of cure. A curious case of a man whose life was threatened by a blue bottle fly and its maggots came to name notice. He was a soldier, and once in a fight he had his nose cut off so that the nostrils became entirely exposed. One night when he was asleep, drunk, a fly laid its eggs in his nose, and when these were hatched it seemed as if the man was to be eaten up alive. I gave him some relief by syringing the parts with a solution of corrosive sublimate. Then an intelligent Mexican who had an extensive knowledge of the numberless native medicinal plants many of which, no doubt, are very valuable, treated the patient, and in today's the poor wretch seemed to be in a fair way to be saved. Near Granadus I heard of some petroglyphs, or rock carvings, and sent Mr. Stephen to examine them. The Mexicans called them, painted face. They were to be found only two miles and a half to the northwest of the town, and were interesting. The designs were rudely pecked on the moderately smooth felsite cliffs on a nearly perpendicular wall in the foothills, about 40 feet above the bed of the arroyo, or gulch. All the human figures were drawn in the characteristic style that we find farther north, the hands and feet being defined with three radiating lines, like a bird's track. The size of the figure, carved in something like a frame, is about 20 by 24 inches, and each of the three figures in the group close below is about 18 inches high. Some of the drawings evidently represent the deified dragonfly found almost everywhere among the ruins of Arizona and northern Mexico. There are also the concentric circles, the conventionalized spiral, and the meander design, so common among the North American Indians, and still in use among the Mokis. Our botanist, Mr. Hartman, drew my attention to an interesting cactus, which is beautifully shaped like a candelabra, and attains a height of 3 to 5 feet, as it grows old. The top joints of the branches become thick and heavy and are easily broken off by the wind. The joints, like all other parts of the plant, are beset with numerous inch-long spines, and many of them fasten in the loose, moist soil and strike root. In this way many new plants are formed, standing in a circle around the mother plant. On sloping ground the young plants form rows, some 40 feet long. There was a fruit to be observed but very scarce in comparison with that of other species of cirrus growing in the vicinity. Chapter II Remarkable Antique Piece A new species of century planned arrival at Nakori. At the foot of the Sierra Madre Trench there is a mammoth tusk secured climbing the Sierra Madre A new squirtle discovered solitude Apache Monument's arrival at Upper Bavisti River. From Granadus we took an easterly course, being at last able to cross the Bavisti River, which, owing to heavy rains in the Sierra, had for some time been overflowing, starting from this point, the ground gradually rising, we arrived at Nakaduchi, a small village remarkable for its church, a massive adobe structure, 
the grand style of which looked somewhat out of proportion in these mountains. It had been built by the Franciscans more than 100 years ago, on the site of an older Jesuit church, remains of which are still in existence, and which in turn had been erected on the ruins of an ancient temple. While inspecting the church Professor Libay discovered that one of the holy water fonts or scoops was a piece of great antiquity, and we were informed that it had been dug up from the debris of the ancient temple when the foundations for the present building were laid. Its aesthetic value appealed even to the unscientific builders of the church, who deemed the vessel worthy of a place in the new cathedral, where it served as a benedier. Unfortunately, it had been found necessary to engrave on the ancient carving some Roman letters dedicating the vessel to its new purpose. Though this somewhat mars its general character, the vase is a most valuable relic of prehistoric Mexico, not only as a masterpiece of ancient art, but still more as a waymark or signpost showing the trend of Aztec migrations. It was not possible to obtain it right away, but a few days later I sent a messenger to a gentleman in Granadoos, whose wife had been relieved from illness by some remedy of mine, requesting him to use his influence with the priest, and in due course I had the satisfaction of possessing this valuable relic of history. The base is made of a soft, unctuous stone resembling steatite soapstone, it is true aeomatolite a mineral popularly called pagoda stone, through the mouth of the human head carved out in front passes a copper tube, which once no doubt pierced the thick wall of the vessel and penetrated into its interior. This tube had been stopped up to make the piece available for its new purpose. Marching for several days through oaks and mesquites, over hills and rising country, we reached Nakori, a poor village in the foothills of the Sierra Madre. It is scarcely 40 miles from Granadoos and lies at an elevation of 3.700 feet. Our camp, about two miles outside of the village, was permeated with a delicious odor of acacia blossoms, and water in the neighboring mountains, though strongly impregnated with iron, was quite palatable. In this region Mr. Hartman found a new form of agave with delicate stripes of white on the lanceolate leaves that constitute the basal rosette of the plant. The flower stalk is only 12 or 13 inches high and I should not wonder if this diminutive and beautiful century plant someday became fashionable in greenhouses. It grows in large numbers in the crevices of the rocks, the perpendicular walls of cannons often being studded with the bright little rosettes when the drought has withered all herbaceous vegetation. From here I made an excursion to an ancient Pueblo site. As usual, there were traces of small dwellings, huts of undressed stone, and fragments of pottery. We found three mortars and one vessel a remarkable number of matapis the stone on which corn is ground, and the corresponding grinding stones, showing that a large population must have once lived here, huddled together in a small space. But the most striking feature of antiquity met thus far on our journey were curious stone terraces built across the small gullies. They are called trencheras trenches. Some of them do not appear to be very old, and many present the appearance of tumble-down walls but the stones of which they are constructed were plainly used in their natural state. Although many of the boulders are huge and irregular in shape, they were used just as they were found. The building material always conformed to the surroundings, in places where conglomerate containing water-worn boulders abounded. This was used, where porphyry was prevalent. Blocks of that material were employed. There is no trace of dressing or cutting, but in the mason work considerable skill is evident. The walls are not vertical but incline somewhat toward the slope on which they are erected. The terrace thus formed is often filled with soil to the height of the wall top for a space of from 15 to 20 feet. Earth taken from them does not show any colors, 
Some of these trencheras measure 30 feet in length by 4 feet in height, while the smallest ones I saw were only 5 feet long and 3 feet high. Naturally enough, the largest ones are in the lower part of the gullies, then, some 25 feet back and above, others almost as large may be found, as the arroyo rises and narrows, the walls, each placed a little higher up the slope than the preceding one, are necessarily smaller, in the mountains near Nakori, especially on their eastern and southeastern sides, trencheras were encountered in every gulch as high up as 6,000 feet, though steep crests and the mountain tops bear no traces of them, in one arroyo, which was about a thousand feet in length and of comparatively gentle slope, 29 trencheras were counted from the bed of the main drainage to the summit of the mountain, some of them were quite close together, three being within 18 feet of one another, these trencheras somewhat resemble the small terrace gardens of the Moti Indians, and had undoubtedly been used for agricultural purposes, just as they are used by the Tarahuares to this day page 152, it is true that they are built in great numbers, sometimes in localities that would appear unsuitable for farming, but, on the other hand, they are seldom, if ever, found far from the remains of habitations, a fact from which it may also reasonably be inferred that the ruined houses, as well as the trencheras, were originally built by the same race. Some of the terraces were, no doubt, erected as a protection of the crop against enemies and wild animals, but it is impossible to think that they were intended for irrigation dams though we did see water running through some, coming out of a marsh, still less likely is it that they had been used as mining dams, as soon as the plains of northern Sonora were left behind, and the country became hilly and broken, these peculiar structures were conspicuous, at first they appeared more like walls built simply along the slopes of the hills, and not crossing gulches, they seemed to be more numerous in the western and central part of the Sierra, its spurs and foothills, than in the eastern part of the Great Range, as regards their southern extent, they are not found further south than the middle part of the state of Chihuahua. Captain Burke, in his book, An Apache Campaign, mentions that in every sheltered spot could be discerned ruins, buildings, walls, and dams, erected by an extinct race once possessing these regions. Mr. A. F. Bandlier, on his journey to the Upper Yaqui River, in 1885, which took him as far as Nakori, also refers to them, and Professor W.J. McGee, on his expedition in 1895, found in northeastern Sonora ruins locally known as Las Trincheras, which he considered the most elaborate prehistoric work known to exist in northwestern Mexico. They comprise, he says, terraces, stone walls, and enclosed fortifications, built of loose stones and nearly surrounding two buttes. I must not omit to mention that in a week's exploration in the mountains near Nakori, Mr. Stephen and his party did not find any pottery fragments, nor flint flakes, nor grinding stones. They reported that there was in that region no other trace of an early people than the hundreds of trencheras in the lower portions of the arroyos. Noteworthy, however, was the frequent occurrence of old trails across the hills, some quite plainly traceable for three and four hundred yards. Old oaks stretched their limbs across many of them quite close to the ground. While at Nakori I learned from the inhabitants that at no great distance from their town there were several deposits containing Wissos Gigantios Giants Bones, a name given to fossils in this part of the world, where the people imagine that the large bones were originally those of giants. I had then neither time nor men to make excavations of any importance, but Mr. White, the mineralogist of the expedition, whom I sent to a look into the matter, 
and who devoted a week to the examination of the deposits, reported that one of them, in a valley 16 miles south of Macquarie, was a bed of clay 30 feet thick and about a mile and a half long. On the edge of this field he discovered a tusk 6 feet 8 inches long and 26 inches at its widest circumference, and having almost the curve of a circle, it was not petrified and had no bone core, but the hole filled in with clay, and its color was a rich mahogany. It was undoubtedly the tusk of a mammoth. From the beginning it had surprised me how very ignorant the people of Sonora were regarding the Sierra Madre, the most prominent man in Opoto, a town hardly 40 miles from the Sierra, told me that he did not know how far it was to the Sierra, nor was he able to say exactly where it was, not even at Nakori, so close to this tremendous mountain range, was there much information to be gotten about it, what the Mexicans know about that region may be briefly summed up thus, that it is a vast wilderness of mountains most difficult of approach, that it would take eight days to climb some of the high ridges, that it contains immense pine forests alive with deer, bear, and wonderfully large woodpeckers, able to cut down whole trees, and that in its midst there are still existing numerous remains of a people who vanished long ago, but who once tilled the soil, lived in towns and built monuments, and even bridges over some of its cannons. This general ignorance is mainly due to the fact that until very recently this entire part of the Sierra, from the border of the United States south about 250 miles, was under the undisputed control of the wild Apache Indians. From their mountain strongholds these marauders made raiding expeditions into the adjacent states, west and east, sweeping down upon the farms, plundering the villages, driving off horses and herds of cattle, killing men and carrying off women and children into slavery. Mines became unworkable, farms had to be deserted, the churches, built by the Spaniards, moldered into decay. The raiders had made themselves absolute masters, and so bold were they that at one time a certain month in the year was set apart for their plundering excursions and called the Moon of the Mexicans, a fact which did not prevent them from robbing at other seasons. Often troops would follow them far into the mountains, but the braves fought so skillfully and hid so well in the natural fortresses of their native domain, that the pursuit never came to anything, and the Mexicans were completely paralyzed with fear. The dread of the terrible pillagers was so great that even at the time when I first went into the district, the Mexicans did not consider it a crime to shoot an Apache at sight. Such a scourge did this tribe become that the governor of Chihuahua had a law passed through the legislature, which put a certain price upon the head of every Apache. But this law had soon to be repealed as the Mexicans, eager to get the reward, took to killing the peaceful Tarahuares, whose scalps, of course, could not be distinguished from those of the Apaches. It was not even now safe for a small party to cross the Sierra Madre, as dissatisfied Apaches were constantly breaking away from the San Carlos Reservation in Arizona, and no Mexican could have been induced to venture singly into that vast unknown domain of rock and forest, about which lingered such painful memories of bloodshed and terror. In the early part of our journey a Mexican officer had called on me to offer, in the name of the governor of the state of Sonora, his services as escort and protection against the Apaches, but I declined the courtesy, preferring to depend rather upon my own men. I am happy to say that I had no personal encounter with the dreaded She's Indy, or men of the woods, as they call themselves, though on one occasion we came upon fresh tracks near one of our camps and also upon small bunches of yucca leaves tied together in a peculiar way known to the Mexicans as signs intelligible only to the Apaches. The only precaution I had taken against possible attacks was to augment my force of trustworthy Mexican muleteers, 
Among the new recruits was an honest-looking open Indian, who joined the camp one evening, clad in the national costume of white cotton cloth, and carrying in his hand a small bundle containing his wife's petticoat probably intended to do duty as a blanket and a pair of scissors. This was his whole outfit for a winter campaign in the Sierra Madre. They are hardy people, these Indians. This man told me that he was 30 years old, his senora, he said, was 25, when he married her she was 15, and now they had 11 children. Finally I succeeded in securing two guides. One of them was a very intelligent man, who had been several times in the Sierra, the other one had been only as far as Chuaicapa, and, although he did not remember the way very well, still he thought that with the help of the other man he would be able to make out the route, as we could do no better. We had to take him as the best guide available. After having received some supplementary provisions from Granadoos, I at last, on December 2, 1890, began the ascent. It was a beautiful day, the air was clear and warm and the sun shone bright, as it always does at this time of the year in this favored region. The genius of spring seemed to hover about, and snow, frost and scarcity of grass seemed far removed contingencies. Everything looked promising. As I left the town, Following the pack train after having made the last settlements with the natives, I passed a little hut, the last homestead on the side of the Sierra. In front of it stood a young girl, her hand raised to shade her eyes against the rays of the sinking sun. She had watched the expedition go by, and was much excited by the strange sight of so many men. The wonderful array of animals and great quantity of baggage never before seen in those parts of the world, with her fine dark eyes, her loose wavy hair and graceful figure. She made a strikingly beautiful picture, and as she called out in a sweet, melodious voice, Adios, Senor, I took this kindly greeting from a pretty girl as a good omen for my journey. On the spur of the moment I dismounted and perpetuated the auspicious scene by means of a Kodak which I carried fastened to the pummel of my saddle. I wish it had been possible for me to send her that picture as a token of my gratitude for her cheery greeting. She surely would have appreciated it as all Mexicans delight in seeing their photographs. Then I turned my face to the east and soon overtook my men, to reach the Sierra Madre from the Bavispe River by way of Macquarie, to or, as the Mexicans consider it, three Sierras have to be crossed, all running, generally speaking, in a northwesterly to southeasterly direction. The first two ranges are quite easy to climb. The third is the Sierra Madre proper, which the Mexicans here call Sierra de Macquarie as the upper Bavispe River from its source makes a great detour toward the north around it, thereby partly separating it from the main chain. Even this range does not really present any unsurmountable difficulties if the weather is fine, in bad weather, I admit. Some parts of the trail we made would be all but impracticable. Having reached the second range called the Sierra de Huayuericay, near its northern terminus, and looking backward, we see the Sierra de Bacatuachi lying farthest to the west. On its eastern flank tower steep tilted broken masses of conglomerate, and the frowning row of dog backs just north and east of Macquarie are only a continuation of that range, but looking east from where we were we obtained the first close view of the main range of the Sierra Madre Sierra de Macquarie. It rises bold and majestic on the opposite side of the valley, at the bottom of which runs the little river of Wairakai. In this valley we camped for two days, being delayed by rains. It was early in December but we found Helianthus 10 to 12 feet high in bloom everywhere in the cannons. A salvia with a blue corolla, dotted with red glands, was very striking, a new variety, as it proved, 
We also observed elders with flowers and leaves at the same time, and the Bendisa formed a thick light green undergrowth in beautiful contrast to the darker shades of the oaks, elders, and fan palms. The latter were the last of their kind we saw on this side of the Sierra. We then went six miles further to the northeast. At first the trail followed the little river, whose clear and rapid water is about a foot deep and on an average six feet wide. Frequently its bed had to be cleared of palm trees to make it passable for the pack train, and big boulders and heavy undergrowth made travel rough. Then, ascending a cordon which led directly up to the main range, we followed for a while a dim trail on which the Apaches used to drive the herds of cattle they had stolen, and which is said to lead to a place so inaccessible that two Indians could keep the whole company at bay. The surface soil we had lately been traveling over was covered with boulders and fragments of conglomerate. The Sierra Madre was now so close that the tilted masses of its rocks seemed to overhang our tents threateningly where we had pitched them at its foot. From this camp we had about the same splendid view as from the ridge of Wayweracai we had just left behind, and between us and the foothills of the Sierra de Bucca which he stretched out a vast mass of barren-looking rocks and hills. The Mexicans call them Agua Blanca, a designation also applied to the small water course that runs through them in a northerly and southerly direction but which from our point of view could not be made out in the chaotic confusion, away off toward the north, at a distance of from 15 to 20 miles, could be seen a high chain of sharp peaks. I may mention here that I found the water of many streamlets and brooks throughout the western mountains of Mexico to have a slightly whitish color and a dull, opalescent look, like a strong solution of quinine. The Mexicans call it Agua Blanca, or Agua Zarca, and consider it the best water they have. Many places especially ranches, are named after it. In the locality where we now found ourselves the water had a slightly bitter taste, owing to a strong admixture of iron and other minerals, but generally it was very palatable. Here, only 23 miles from Macquarie, and at an elevation of 4.000 feet, we were obliged to make camp for three days. Dense fogs and occasional hard showers made travel impossible. Besides, our principal guide, Augustin Rios, became dangerously ill. He was 65 years old, and I decided to send him back. When I hired him I had not been aware that he was afflicted with an incurable disease, and that on this account his wife had tried to keep him at home. Now he had to be carried on a sort of palanquin constructed for the occasion, and I regret to state that he died before he reached his home in Macquarie. He had been a reliable man, and his loss was very deplorable. Before he left he gave me directions for finding a rather large ancient pueblo, which he had come across once in the Sierra, and of which he frequently spoke to us. However, our search for it proved fruitless, and I am inclined to think that it would probably not have differed much from those we found later on Bavisby River. From now on I made it a rule to send three or four men about two days ahead of the main body of the expedition, to make a path. Occasionally they were guided by Apache tracks but for the most part we cut our own way through the wilderness, instead of adopting the Mexican method of going uphill as straight as practicable. I had the trail cut zigzag, and to this I attribute the fact that I was able to pull through at all, as it saved the animals an immense amount of strain. The steepest inclination we ascended was 40 degrees while for the most part we climbed at an angle of about 30 degrees. On some of the ridges, in order to help an animal up, one man had to drag it by a line while two others pushed it from behind. In many places the mules had to be led one by one along the narrow edge of chasms. To look at these mountains is a soul-inspiring sensation, 
but to travel over them is exhaustive to muscle and patience, and the possibility of losing at any moment perhaps the most valuable part of your outfit is a constant and severe strain on your mind. Nobody except those who have traveled in the Mexican mountains can understand and appreciate the difficulties and anxieties attending such a journey. Not only the animals themselves, but everything they carry is vital to the success of the expedition, and there is always a danger that, for instance, your camera and photographic outfit, and the priceless collection of negatives already taken, may roll down a precipice, a mule with its bulky pack island to a certain extent, helpless on these narrow mountain trails. Old and experienced animals often maneuver their packs with a cleverness that is almost human, yet, whenever a mule runs accidentally against some projection, or its foot slips, the poor beast invariably loses its balance, and over it goes, down the hill with ever-increasing velocity. On one occasion I heard a noise coming from above without being at first able to discern what caused it. A few stones came tumbling down, and were presently followed by a donkey, pack and all turning over and over with astounding speed, it cleared a perpendicular rock some twenty feet high and landed at its base, rolling over twice, then, to my amazement, it rose to its feet in the midst of its scattered cargo, and do you know what that cargo consisted of, a case of dynamite and our tool chest, as fast as their legs could carry them, two Mexicans were by its side, promptly reloading the donkey and leading it up to the trail as coolly as if nothing had happened, a very fine mule, raised on the plains of Arizona, was naturally giddy, and met with such a mishap three times in one day, tumbling down 150 to 200 feet without, however, being seriously hurt, at first I was greatly shocked to see the animals thus rolling over and over with their packs, down the mountain sides, never stopping until checked by some large tree or rock, sometimes 200 feet below, but the Mexicans were evidently quite accustomed to such happenings, which seemed to be in the regular line of their travel. I could not help admiring the agility as well as the valor of my Mexican packers and muleteers on such occasions. They moved about as sure-footed and quick as sailors on their ship, and always on the alert. Whenever one of the poor beasts lost its foothold, the men would instantly run after it, and as soon as some obstacle stopped its downward career they would be by its side and relieve it of its burden. Of course, sometimes the animal was badly bruised about the head, and enabled to carry a pack for a few days, but, mere a mild issue, in the majority of cases it rose to its feet, then, after giving it a few moments respite, the packers would strap the cargo again on its back, unless they deemed it proper to take a part of it upon themselves, so that the beast might more safely climb the declivity, the men really seemed indefatigable, one of them once took upon his head a large case of honey and carried it up the ridge on a run, strange as it may sound, on my first journey across the Sierra Madre I did not lose one animal by such accidents. Climbing, 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 one massive cordon after another, at the start through dense oak thickets, and over hills flattened and eroded with countless deep, precipitous gashes seeming the rock in every direction. Numerous springs used and trickled from the stratified conglomerate along the edges, sides, and bottoms of the ravines. The tops of some of these truncated knolls were quite swampy in the depressions and covered with a thin stem feathery grass. Here and there was a clump of scrub oaks, sparsely scattered about were small pines. We found great numbers of Opuntia missourienses, called by the Mexicans nopal, small mesquite shrubs, too, are seen everywhere, while the resurrection plant covers great areas, like the heather on the Scotch hills. 
Here are also found century plants, or agaves, and many species of small ferns, such as the graceful maidenhair. In the larger watercourses are poplars and maples, now presenting their most brilliant hues, and carrying the thoughts of the Americans back to their northern homes. Thus we advanced for about six miles and made camp, at an elevation of 6.300 feet, on some old trenchers, with a fine view over the vast country we had left below. Large flocks of gray pigeons of remarkable size squatted on the pine trees nearby, and two specimens of the gigantic woodpecker we here observed for the first time. Here, too, Mr. Robinette shot a new species of squirtle, Sciurusapash. It was large, of a pale grayish-yellow color varied with black, and having a long, full and bushy tail. We had now arrived in the pine region of the Sierra. The Mexican scouts reported that the country ahead of us was still more difficult of access, but the track having been laid out well by Professor Libeti along the pine-covered slopes, we safely arrived at the crest of the Sierra, which here has an elevation of 8.200 feet. The steep slopes of the valleys and crevices were covered with slippery pine needles 8 to 12 inches long, while the pines rose up to a height of a 100 feet or more. The forest, never touched by a woodman's axe had a remarkably young and fresh look about it, now and then, however, at exposed places we came upon trees broken off like matches, telling of what terrific storms may rage over these solitary regions that received us calmly enough, not until we had reached the top did we feel the wind blowing pretty hard from the east and encouraging us in our hopes that the fine weather would continue, although the moon appeared hazy, having ascended the Sierra, we made a picturesque camp on the top of the cordon, in the midst of forests so dense that we did not get any view of the landscape, while here, Mr. Stephen discovered, on the summit of a peak, about 420 feet above the brow of the ridge, a small, circular structure about 4 feet in diameter, 4 or 5 large fragments of scoria, each about 15 inches high, were set around in a circle, and the space between them was filled in with small fragments, no nicety was shown in the work, but the arrangement of the stones was not accidental, it was, however, quite old, for in several places the fragments were cemented together with a thick coat of lichen. The purpose of the circle is a matter of conjecture. We were now obliged, as the guide did not seem to know any more of the country, 